A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. I plan to release this podcast before Christmas, actually. But you know what happens. Things get hectic. In fact, I was I spent most of my time finalising a Audible original that I've got coming out in early January. And that, it's called No Office Required. And it's sort of like an in-depth analysis of where we've got to with remote working. So I chat to psychologists and property experts and workplace designers and all manner of people. And uh, I think it's going to be free on Audible. So if you are a subscriber, maybe you did one of those things where you you bought yourself an Audible subscription, maybe to get that Barack Obama biography. That sounds beautifully narrated. Or... It was, it was on the radio this week. I think I'll download that one. Or maybe you've you've just found yourself wanting to improve your knowledge by subscribing and just getting a, a few of the popular psychology books or maybe an occasional... Anyway, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter what you've done. We're going to be here all day talking about what you've done, but you've done it. And if you do that, then you're entitled to these free Audible podcasts that they do. And I think... No office required is going to be one of them. So look, don't trouble yourself with it now. I'll tell you when it comes out. But uh, that's coming as an Audible original in January. And today's guest, I think if you're locked in on New Year's Eve, you're thinking, maybe you're reflecting, you know, one of those things. You're reflecting, where's my life gone wrong? Life used to be so fun and frivolous. Well, then today's guests could be the counsellor that you need. They could be the sage advice in your ear. Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdanis, they run a tremendously successful course at Stanford Business School on how we can use humour to be happier and better at our jobs. And I think the fundamental question they ask is sort of, how the heck did we get into this idea of thinking that humour and serious work are in, in opposition to each other? So they run this course at Stanford Business School and really sort of inviting people to think. I think the the book they've created effectively takes you step by step through the course that they, they run. And I have to say, you know, I read a lot of these books. I tell them repeatedly. I really adored this book because I think it sort of helps reprioritize some of the ways that we think about work. One of the things they talk about along the way, they have brilliant people come along and guest speak which I think is the the blessing of being in California. But uh, one of the people they have come along is Dick Costello, and he's the former chief exec of Twitter. In fact, he hired me. I joined Twitter when there was about 
300, 400 people at the company. And Dick had a, an unorthodox background. He spent his post-college years initially trying to make it as an improv comedian at the legendary Second City Comedy Club in Chicago. And he was alongside people. I think uh, at the time he was there, Steve Carell from The Office was there. I mention it because in the discussion, um, Dick Costello comes up and uh, there's sort of a, a brief bit of laughter, largely because I'd been on the call telling Jennifer just before Naomi joined us. I'd, I'd been telling her an excruciating episode I had with, with Dick Costello. He was coming to London when I'd just first joined. So he'd hired me. This was the first time I was meeting him in person since that. I'd flown to San Francisco for my interview. And then uh, and he's, his assistant had told me something. You know, I don't know in hindsight whether she was trolling me, but she uh, had arranged this, this session, which was going to be Dick Costello in conversation with Rory Sutherland for a really small, intimate, private audience, which I thought was this pretty amazing happening. Dick is very funny, and Rory's obviously sort of incredibly intelligent. And um, his assistant has said, right, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to get to his hotel before he gets there, get to the breakfast area, get the best table there. I mean, what's the best table? I don't know. I don't know what best tables are. And then order his breakfast. So make sure you order a full cooked breakfast, plenty of crispy bacon. And uh, maybe I'll tell you the story another time. But let me tell you, what followed was calamitous and really, really excruciating. It was awful. And I was in the middle of telling that story when Naomi jumped on the line, which is, uh, explains the, the reason why uh, this sort of collective laugher when, when she mentions him. Anyway, I really love this discussion. And if you're listening to this, I think it might give you pause to say to yourself, how could I bring more warmth and humour to my job? Because the thing they expressly say it's laughing more at work isn't about necessarily trying to be this person cracking Robin Williams style sort of machine gun punchline driven gags, but more finding humor in work is looking to find humor in everyday situations. And it's just such a joyous message. So here we go. Here's my discussion with the authors of Humor Seriously. This is Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonis. Hello, both. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. I was just telling you before we started recording how much I enjoyed your book. I wonder if you could kick off by just introducing who you are. Absolutely. So my name is Jennifer Ocker. I'm the General Atlantic Professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm also a mom of three adorable kids and a rescue dog that Naomi found about two years ago and has changed our life. Oh, get out. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm Naomi Bagdonis. I'm a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and executive coach and spent my career straddling corporate strategy and the world of comedy. And I also happened to find Jennifer's dog, who is a adorable rescue dog, and I'm now the godmother of, and I have a dog of my own. Just fill in the gaps on these dogs. What, what sort of breed are <laughs> <we> expecting? Yes. <laughs> We, we rarely introduce ourselves as being so dog oriented, but you know, it, this just every day is a new day. I will say that one of the many, many things that I admire about Naomi is that she actually fosters dogs 
So she has had a long history of fostering dogs, which has been a huge source of comedy in her life and certainly mine. It's true. If you want more comedy in your life, start fostering dogs because you're doing good for Random the world. Dogs. And right. you, ha- you know, I, I bought this book about dog training. It's called Don't Shoot the Dog. And it's all about positive reinforcement training. Well, I am adamant that I am going to leave these dogs better when they stay with me. And inevitably, they end up totally tearing my life apart. So that, that <laughs> book, I had it for three days because I was fostering this adorable, super sweet dog who was just a terror anytime I was out of the house. So I left the house and I came back and I found paper strewn about my entire home. And he had found that book he, he didn't destroy anything wow. else. He just destroyed that book. <laughs> it was just like chaos of paper. So anyways, um, yeah, foster, foster dogs, like he'd people. Been, like he'd been slighted by that book. And it's just <laughs> exactly. like, not that book again. This is the third home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this. Um, so you've written this book, Humor Seriously, subtitled Why Humor is a Superpower at Work and Life. Why do you think we stop laughing? Why? You, firstly, tell us the bleak stats on this probably our instinct is that we think we stop laughing as much but when do we and why yes so we absolutely do as um consider this the average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day the average 40-year-old laughs that many times in two and a half months obviously we have sort of taken a tumble off of a humor cliff and what we find in a global data set of 1.4 million people is that this happens at a really specific age that at age 23 people really stop laughing they stop believing themselves to be funny and of course this is right around the time that we enter the workforce now i was delighted that you gave a source for that that children laughing thing it's something that a few of us vaguely have heard that stat before but i think you sort of gave an origin for it so hang on so is this because we believe when we enter work the way that we will prevail at work is that we adopt this sort of serious demeanor or or is it just the suddenly the demands of life start breaking us what's what's the reason why 23 is the point we stop laughing yeah, well, so part of this is, you know, you, around 23-ish, you, we start, you know, entering the workforce. And one of the reasons we find there's such a huge humor cliff where people literally stop laughing and smiling is partly because of these beliefs that we have in our head. One of them is this idea that humor is no place amidst serious work and that people hold this false belief that humor is in opposition too serious. So if we take our work seriously, the presence of laughter and lightness betray that mission. So that's one of four deadly humor myths that we talk a little bit about in our book. There seems to be this strange thing, this sort of, this conflict running at the heart of it. You know, you say that the vast majority of people, um, CEOs prefer job candidates that have got a sense of humor, that we often like our bosses to have a sense of humor. And yet when it comes to the the way that we choose to project ourselves, we seem to try and edit the humor out. What's the reason? Is it because when you're in a position of high status, you can appreciate humor, but when you're lower status, you don't want to show something that's a weakness? What's the reason? Yeah, I think in part people 
when we think of ourselves, we have a misperception about what it is to bring humor to work versus when we see someone else who has a sense of humor, it's very easy to spot. What we often find with Mm -hmm. our students is they say, well, I'm not funny. I don't want to try to be funny. That results in people sort of holding things more tightly, being more serious, being more austere, feeling more stressed out because they need to get the answer just right. And in fact, when people report that others have a sense of humor, it's not necessarily that they're always the one telling jokes or they're landing the perfect punchline. It's more often that they are looking for reasons to be delighted. They're looking for reasons to find joy. They're a little bit easier to make laugh and smile. And so when we think of humor for ourselves, we think of telling jokes and being funny. But when we observe humor in other people, it's so much more about mindset. And so that is really Mm. what we end up training our students to do and the executives we work with is how do you have a fundamentally different mindset where you are navigating your life on the precipice of a smile? I get it. It's about really not necessarily believing that you're going to stride into a presentation and deliver a load of zingers, but (laughs) it's almost, sometimes you you talk about sort of having a a generosity with laughter as well. I think, you know, that seems Mm. to be one of the ways that you think about it. So it's like this levity of mood, it's a generosity of laughter. Is that the approach? Yeah, a part of it is literally just being more generous with laughter. And it has to be authentic laughter. You know, that kind of Duchenne smile, like, the, you know, your eyes crinkle mm. and it, it sounds authentic. So if it's inauthentic, does not help so much. But certainly being generous with laughter is part of this. And the second piece of this is really just being more aware that simple stat that Naomi mentioned, which is, you know, around age 40, you you end up laughing as many times as a four-year-old in 2.5 months, whereas they would they would laugh that many times in, in one single day. And one of the ways that we found that, at least for our students, gain a greater awareness of simply how much joy or laughter or humor that they have in their life is to do what we call a humor audit which is the most fun audit ever. And all they do is they, you know, basically take one week and they write down how many times they laughed and then how many times did they make someone else laugh? First of all, it's terrifying, like how sad Mm. the data comes in, especially that first week. We remember one of our, one of our students said, you know, on Tuesday, I did not laugh once. I never knew a class on humor could be so depressing. (laughs) Um, But by the end of the class, they actually aren't just more generous with their laughter. They really do become funnier. It's not just that they were better at telling a joke or knowing the science of humor, but it's also this simple awareness of how much it's lacking in their life. And then looking for these windows of moments to insert a small amount of laughter in the day, in, in work with colleagues or with family. That is so fascinating. So talk me how you would create a teachable moment then. Firstly, I guess, you know, it's that old thing, the business thing that they say you you only can change what you measure and effectively you're measuring Mm. this. But it's almost like subconsciously people were steering away from laughter before and by measuring it, they just suddenly realize they can choose to steer into it. That is exactly right. Yes. So it's actually, and it's wild, there's research around this. So There was a study done where it was an eight-week humor skills program. So Bruce, imagine that for the next eight weeks, once a week, you have a one-hour long session. 
that teaches something really simple about having to do with laughter. Bruce, this week, you're going to focus on just looking for moments to laugh. Or next week, you're going to focus on developing a healthier and heartier belly laugh. So when you do laugh, you're going to laugh from lower, you're going to laugh in a more hearty way. So every week, these participants had, you know, a simple one hour long session. They tried to incorporate more humor into their lives. Again, really low bar, really simple things. Even though these things were so simple, at the end of these eight weeks, the group of participants in the humor skills group versus the control group reported fewer instances of depression. They reported Uh, lower stress in their life. They reported that their lives had a higher proportion of positive feelings throughout the day to negative feelings. And they even said that they had more control in their lives. And this is something, as you said, this is something we see with our students and with executives as well. And it leans on a psychological principle called the priming effect, which says we will find what we set out to look for. Our brains will find what we tell them to look for. And so if we're looking for joy at the end of a week, at the end of eight weeks, we're going to report having more of that in our lives. Wow. The way you describe it there, it feels, firstly, as you describe that course, you sort of feel, you know, sign me up. I sort of, I I want to, I want to participate in this, but then you, you then can't help but feel how ill-equipped we arrive at adulthood or in work that we're not, we're not given an insight into these things because they seem such powerful life skills. And actually they help us frame the whole context of our life that the absence of them is, is, seems to be causing, like you say, more stress, more anxiety. Yeah, not only that, but there's really fascinating research that shows that individuals who basically have any sense of humor, oh, by the way, that was my dog. He (laughs) likes it when Naomi and I talk on podcasts about humor and he likes to (laughs) chime in. So he might throw in a joke or two. But what's really fascinating is with that humor actually adds on years to your life. So there was one study done in Norway. Um, It was a longitudinal study over the course of 15 years. And basically people just rated whether they had a sense of humor. And it could be any sense of humor. It doesn't even need to be a good sense of humor. And what these researchers found is that A, the people with a sense of humor versus those who said they didn't have a 30% better chance of survival if severe disease strikes, which as we're living through a global pandemic has very current relevance for all of us. And they live eight years longer. And because of the humor cliff, those are eight relatively high quality, funny years. (laughs) Um, So yes. It's, it's quite true. The adage that humor is the best medicine after, you know, actual medicine is yeah. empirically robust. Yeah. Don't vaccinate me with humor, but once I've got the <laughs> vaccine inside of me, I'm there. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and Bruce, go on. Oh, I was going to say, I love your line about how we are ill-equipped. We're trained into so many things and we are conditioned out of so many things. And I think in a similar way that we're Little kids, in some ways, are conditioned out of their creativity, out of their sense of play. We're conditioned out of our sense of humor. And to your point and Jennifer's point about there are downsides to this, we're also just leaving a ton of value on the table. So Mm. there's an incredible amount of research that shows if we use humor effectively at work, we will be more powerful. People perceive us as higher in status. They're more likely to, to vote us into leadership roles. 
it makes us better able to connect with colleagues in meaningful ways. And of course, when we're interacting over 12-inch screens, this becomes more important than ever when we're more physically uh, disconnected. Humor unlocks more creativity. And of course, we see this in practice from Pixar to Apple's creative group to IDEO, that this is really a sort of secret elixir to unlocking creativity in groups. And lastly, of course, resilience, which we've been talking about quite a bit. And so I think it's important to recognize it's not just that we've lost our sense of joy and there's a lot of downside. There's also a ton of value that we are just leaving on the table. Someone might hear this and think, okay, I had a boss who was a Michael Scott or in the UK, we had David Brent, but was uh, was a character who tried to be funny and everyone cringed and it was one of the worst parts of their working experience because we witnessed that when humor goes wrong, it often has a victim at the end of the, the humor or, or it's, it's just, it borders on inappropriate or it says, you know, it says things that that sometimes just don't feel that welcome in the workplace. So we've often seen humor go wrong. And so one might hear what you're saying there, where they're thinking, okay, you know, I can laugh with my friends. I make jokes with my friends, you know, at home, I'm four out of 10 funny. So I know I've got a little bit of humor, but I'm daunted by bringing this into my workplace. And when you're teaching this, how do you guide people then? So you've said you're asking them to think about opportunities for laughter, being more generous with laughter. But should people feel a sense of pressure that I need to create something funny? Give us a pointer of what they should be thinking about. Uh, It's such an important point that you're making, Bruce. No, it is absolutely (laughs) not true that you should aim for funny. In fact, the least funny thing is when people try to be funny, right? And, um, or one of them. So what we find is that, um, you know, there's another one of these deadly myths is that people often assume that if you're going to use humor, you A, in the workplace especially, you need to A, be funny and try to be funny. And funny is one thing. It's about being a stand-up and, you know, being in front of a crowd and, and, and throwing jokes. But that's actually a misperception. So we've run thousands and thousands and thousands of... Uh, <laughs> and thousands. And, and more thousands. thousands. I was about to say, hundreds we may- <laughs> of studies with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Let me be clear. <laughs> And, um, and what we've, what we've shown is that there's these very different types of humor. So Bruce, you'll have to tell us what you think you are, and then we'll confirm whether you are that or or not. Okay. And if you're in the audience, do this for yourselves. You can do this. We'll be with you. All right. First style is stand-up. They are natural entertainers who aren't afraid to ruffle a few feathers to get a laugh. So this is kind of your classic, you know, stereotype of a funny person. But then there's also magnets and they keep things positive and warm and uplifting. They avoid controversial or upsetting humor while radiating charisma. Then there's the sniper. They are edgy, sarcastic, nuanced. They are unafraid to cross lines in pursuit of a laugh. Um, Oftentimes they are hard to laugh themselves, but if you can get them to laugh, you feel fantastic. And then there's sweethearts. They are earnest and honest, and they avoid humor that might risk hurting feelings. So their humor often flies under the radar, but it often kind of uplifts. First, Michael Scott or... Um, David um, Brent. 
Yes. <laughs> Might be a stand-up, but there's all these other different types. So Bruce, what do you think you are? And you might be something- What was the second one again? Oh, the second one's called a magnet. Right. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What are you guys? How would you describe yourselves? I'm going to describe Naomi first. All right. I would say- that first of all, people often have a primary and a secondary style can shift across contexts. When I first got to know Naomi, she was absolutely a magnet, um, like a hundred percent almost. And, you know, she keeps things positive and warm and uplifting almost all of the time when people, when she leaves the room, people like feel closer together after her experience with them. But as I got to know her, I could start seeing her sniper side um, okay. and then when I started teaching with Naomi, I could absolutely start to see her stand up side. And then oftentimes when we're in meetings, there's actually a sweetheart. So she's kind of unique in the sense that she really does demonstrate all four different styles, depending on the context in which she finds herself. But it's also because of our relationship, you know, that I got to know these different facets of her over, over the time. So that's what I'll say. Mm. Now, Naomi, what do you think of me in a better be positive? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Love that. I'm going to say Jennifer's great at one-liners, at diffusing tension in a moment, at sort of delivering something in a really dry, deadpan way, which would be more sniper. She's great at bringing people together. So that would be her leaning towards sweetheart. And I've also seen her bring out her more extroverted sniper side. So that would lean towards, towards stand-up. So I guess I've seen a range as well. So Bruce, if you have more insight into what you are, you can share it now. Otherwise, I'll give you some time. I can dance. No, the interesting thing is that uh, firstly, I think it comes uncomfortably to me. As you describe all of those things, I I recognize the time where, you know, I would do a witty put down on someone or, you know, I make a point when I'm doing presentations to have two or three gags in there. So that would be the stand up because I just, I, I know from experience, even if I'm just showing someone else's funny video, that if I get the audience to laugh, I was chatting to someone a, a few years ago and I said, you know, I often start with, if I see a funny video, I think I'm going to use that in a presentation one time. And she said to me, but why, you know, but why if it doesn't fit? And I said, once you've got a funny video, that you know is going to warm the room. You can make it fit. And I said, the best thing for me was quite often people associate me with being funny when all I've done is I've pressed next slide. And and so, you know, so that stand up part, I can definitely see. I was just uncomfortable thinking that I might be regarded as funny. You know what I mean? Sort yeah. of, uh, I think back to your point. So when you're saying, what sort of funny are you? The hesitance I've got is just, I don't want to be bigging myself up by saying I'm funny. So it's just an interesting idea, really. And I really like the the different archetypes you've described because I can definitely see all of those. Yeah. And what you're saying, Bruce, is exactly what... It's the answer to one of those earlier questions, which is where you're saying, mm. do people really want to be funny at work? Or you know, does the bar seem too high? And that's a great example of you hit play on a slide and everyone says Bruce has a great sense of humor. And so... But you're making the choice as you're watching videos, as you're finding humor in the world, you're making a choice to bring that into work and to share it with your colleagues. And that's just the little step. Whatever your sense of humor is activated by, just bring that, bridge the gap and bring a little bit more of that at work. And the the other thing I wanted to say, Bruce, to your question about David Brent and Michael Scott, which is such an important one, is this is why our class at Stanford is 10 weeks long. 
because we spend the first day just proving that humor is important. And then we spend the next nine weeks teaching people how to actually do this in a work setting. And so the two tips that I would have from that observation about David Brent and Michael Scott that we give to our students is, number one, really get to know your style. Because once you know your style, you know what your unique risk profile is in a professional setting. So a stand-up, mm-hmm. for example, is going to risk crossing the line, ruffling feathers, offending someone because they tend to have a more biting style. And they actually build intimacy through that biting style, but it can land poorly on people who have a different style. Uh, the sweetheart on the other side of the spectrum um, over-indexes on self-deprecation to, to maintain peace in a group. And so that style's risk profile is going to look very different. That person is going to risk taking away their own power by overly self-deprecating at work. Um, So that would be the first tip. And then the second tip is stay calibrated. And this is especially important for leaders because we know that laughter is tied up with status. So people laugh, not because you're funny always, but because you're high in status. And and we find this in, in lab experiments where someone will tell the same lame joke And if they're in a position of power, people will laugh. If they're not in a position of power, it'll be crickets. Mm -hmm. As our students and as the executives we work with get more senior in their organization, they really have to actively check in with people about how their humor is landing because laughter is no longer the trusty barometer that it used to be. So interesting. I'm fortunate enough to chat to Robert Provine. I'm not sure if you, uh, you, you didn't mention Robert Provine in, in your book, but um, Robert Provine was sort of this expert in laughter and, and he studied laughter and contagious human uh, activities. And he said, you know, he talks a lot about how we laugh more in company than we do individually. And for him, he described it with such a vivid description. He said, um, laughter is like a human bird song. It's the way that we forge connection with other people. And one of the mm-hmm. things he talks about in his, his book, um, his book called Laughter, he's, he talks about how we can choose to be laughter ready. We can choose to seek out laughter. And, you know, he said, if you've got a company meeting, having a moment on your agenda, which everyone knows is the funny bit that happens, is such an important way to just frame laughter as, as a critical part of the way we operate. So, um, I was thrilled actually that your book so beautifully complements it without sort of having having overlap. And it seems to be this spirit of just seeking levity in what we do seems to make all of it richer. Absolutely. You know, a lot of this is chemical. Um, When we laugh with someone, whether it's through a screen or six feet apart, our brains release a cocktail of healthy hormones that suppress cortisol and increase dopamine and oxytocin. So, and oxytocin, by the way, is that same hormone that's released during sex and childbirth. So, in other words, having sex, giving birth, and laughing with colleagues in a Zoom meeting have a lot in common. (laughs) We're all building trust and no one's wearing pants. So, um, when you actually create that context for laughter, especially at the beginning of a meeting, for example, you are changing the neurochemistry in people's, you know, brains. And so that's one of the reasons they can go into the next set of, you know, discussions in the meeting with potentially more openness with an ability to get on the same page more quickly and also be more creative. There's a lot of work that shows the relationship between humor and laughing and creativity. 
But I also wanted to add that Naomi and I focus a lot on these very specific techniques that comedians oftentimes use that um, for people who don't think they're funny seem almost mysterious, but are actually quite systematic and, and easy to rely on. And one of them is much more improvisational and doesn't require really planning. And that's called your classic callback, which is, you know, simply noting when someone else potentially in the meeting made others laugh. So you kind of jot that down. What was the key line? What was the sentence, et cetera. And then later in the meeting, you simply make reference in the right moment to that same sentence. And you're doing two things there. One, when you create these callbacks, you're again, re-engaging or priming that, that original laughter response, but you're second, making that person who originally created the laughter feel incredibly valued because you're, you're listening and you're being in the moment there. So a great example of a callback, I was on a call the other day and it was with a group of CFOs. They're all introducing themselves as either I'm the CFO of X or I'm, I'm a retired CFO. So, you know, a bunch of people are going back to back and one woman comes on the line and she says, I'm a recovering CFO. And everyone laughs, you know, because she's retired, but she says, I'm recovering. A couple people later, I'm a CFO, I'm a CFO, I'm a CFO. Then someone says, you know, I'm, I'm also a recovering CFO. So I'm in a group with, you know, X. And so everyone laughs again. This is a great example of a callback. You know, the introductions continue. And then a couple people later, a woman comes on the line and she says, I'm actually an aspiring recovering CFO of, you know, X company. And so, and again, the whole, you know, the whole um, line laughs. And it's a great example of just looking for those little moments of levity. You don't even have to create them. You just listen for them and then you drop them back later. And it's such an easy way to get a laugh. Fantastic. Tell me, we've sort of hinted at it a couple of times along the the way here. And in this Zoom era that a lot of us are in, I, I remember in the sort of the early stage of, this sort of weird working from home situation. Um, someone said to me, I, I don't think I've laughed in days. Do you mm-hmm. think we laugh less when we're at the end of a screen than when we're in a room? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, naturally, yes. But that's part of the reason why we have to go out of our way to not let that happen. So we know that the more technology mediated our communication becomes, the easier it is to lose our humanity and therefore a sense of humor in the interaction. And so this was always true for email, right? That we write emails in a way that feels sterile and, you know, doesn't exactly mirror the way that we would talk. Well, when our brains are cued by sitting in front of a screen versus sitting next to someone in person and having our, you know, pheromones interact with each other and seeing each other's body language, we, we sort of, um, we modify the way that we behave to fit that medium. And so one thing that, that, uh, we do with our, um, that we often do in our, in our talks and workshops is we'll say, all right, everyone, stop what you're doing. You're having an email audit. So we make everyone go into their email and search the last 10 emails they've sent looking for the most egregious jargon or the most egregious, sterile line that they would never say in real life. So they, you know, they do this and we give a prize for whoever has the most egregious, totally sterile line. And, you know, and, and it's this, it's this moment of realization of, wow, I don't talk like that in person. If I was in a room with this person, we wouldn't be interacting that way. But because we are interacting through technology, it becomes so easy to adapt ourselves to that medium. And so the lesson there is 
stop for 10 seconds after you write an email, see if it's the way that you would interact in person. And if not, rewrite it and send it out the door. And obviously the same thing with our Zoom meetings is just take a minute and make sure that you're really interacting in the same way that you would if you were in person. Back with my discussion with the authors of Humor Seriously after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now back to my discussion with the authors of Humor Seriously, Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdanis. I was really struck with the, the description that you gave of, of Jennifer's mom and, and, and sort of one of the reasons why you considered this important. And I just wonder if, if it was worth the, the way that you end the book talking about the regrets that people have later in life. I'm intrigued not only with that, and I'd love to hear Jennifer say that. What made you create this wonderful course? Two questions there. Yeah, well, in terms of the second part of that question, which is why did we create the course? I think part of it was that, you know, this is such an under leveraged, under appreciated superpower, literally a superpower. You know, the, the guests that come in and talk with the, the students are oftentimes, well, some of them are guests that, that do visit business school sometimes. Like, you know, you have Richard Branson or Sarah Blakely, CEO of, of Spanx, or Dick Costello, who was the former CEO of Twitter. <laughs> These individual <laughs> what? I'm just laughing that you told Bruce that Dick is the former CFO of Twitter or CEO of Twitter. <laughs> oh my god. Well, do, weren't you well, do you know okay. Dick Costello? Yeah, yeah. That when you joined the call, actually, I was in the I'm, middle of a very long and elaborate. Like, yeah, call, like our <laughs> audience doesn't know what we're talking about right now. But when I joined the call, guys, you know, <laughs> Sorry. we're talking about Dick Costello. So this was a poorly executed callback earlier conversation. Ah. to. Oh no! Um, and but I think it still demonstrates the point. <laughs> of course, yes. yeah, I laughed. That's right. <laughs> and then the second set of guests that come into the class that have just been a joy is, um, to have are these very unique um, individuals that don't normally come into business school classes, like 
you know, Seth Meyers from Late Night or Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who um, stars in Veep, as you know, and was um, part of Seinfeld. Or, or mm. we have Sarah Cooper, who um, has been part, a big part of the class. And so this under-leveraged, under-appreciated superpower allows Naomi and I um, an ability to connect with the students in a, in a domain that has been underserved but has just a wealth of research to support how important it is. So that's what I would say. Naomi, what do you think? Why, 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 you know, why did we create that? Why, well, why teach this class? Why, why the heck do this? Um, I no, I mean, that's exactly right. I, we, I think both just fundamentally believe that not only do our workplaces need more laughter and joy, but we in our lives need more laughter and joy. There's some way that, and you mentioned the laughter is like a human bird song. And I, I love that. We talk about laughter as a melody, that it's a fundamental melody of human conversation. And when we get in tune with each other, when we sing the same melody, we are able to sync up, we're able to connect in ways that few other things make possible. And so we think of laughter as this sort of thing that we do on the weekends or at home or with our friends, but it doesn't have a function at work. And we really deeply believe, first, it has a really important function at work um, and it can be incredibly powerful for, for people. And also that our our lives will be better, we'll be more connected, our you know country and world will be hopefully less divided and divisive if we can have greater empathy and connect in the way that laughter allows people to connect. Yeah, absolutely. The way that you end the book, all of the people with their regrets. If we could make our work more human and more enjoyable, and that seems to pollinate other people's experience of work as well, then it just seems to be a, a noble way to enhance what we spend most of our adult lives doing. Yep, that's exactly right. That point sort of brings back one of the other big reasons we wrote this book, which has, ironically, uh, has a lot to do with meaning in life. And this is the topic that I've studied from an academic perspective for 20 years. You know, what actually creates meaning in life versus what creates short-run happiness in life. And it turns out that these two things, which are related, but they're not the same, really are pulled apart by three things. Individuals that have a lot of meaning, but not necessarily a ton of happiness in their life are much more other-oriented. They're much more um, focused on the past, the present, and the future. And they're much more likely to be understanding that life is not just about positive feelings. It's also about negative feelings. That's what creates the human condition. And that's what creates meaning in life. Those individuals that prioritize happiness over meaning tend to be much more self-oriented, tend to be much more kind of just focused on how they feel right now. And they often have the goal to optimize how good they feel all of the time, not feeling negative. Now, this is important research to think about because what it turns out is when people are at the end of their life, they often look back at what, you know, the life that they lived, sometimes with regret. And the individuals that do often realize that they um, put happiness too much on a pedestal and not enough meaning. And where meaning becomes important is, you know, really in this in the space of like the quality of your relationships with people. You know, did you say, were you present with them? Did you say, I love you? Did you laugh easily with them? And meaning also comes from, you know, how bold you lived your life and how authentically you lived your life. And so each of these things that people often express at the end of their life as being things that they regret 
are actually mitigated if you if you really live a life of levity and humor because humor makes you more bold it makes you more authentic when you connect with others you're much more present you know you're you're listening for that callback you have more joy in your life because you you know laugh more generously don't take yourself too seriously and you can argue that even humor is a small form of love and that when humor exists, love is not far behind. As we finish, so if people, that was brilliant, by the way, but as, as we finished, if people are sort of going to go away from this thinking, okay, I'm convinced, is the first thing they should do to, to keep that laughter audit, that sort of diary of when they laugh, what would you suggest as a first step? What's the gateway drug to this? The first step is making the choice. And it really is recognizing that this is not about becoming funnier. It's about fundamentally having a different mindset. And a really simple way of doing that is, you know, the first step that we have our students do, that we have the executives we work with do, is to simply take a humor audit, which is, you know, for every day for the next week, write down the moments that you laugh, write down the moments that you made someone else laugh. And really try and look for those moments. Try and get more moments the next day than you did the previous day. Of course, we have a whole chapter in our book about what are techniques from comedians that you can use to, to actually you know, put that into practice. And of course, quite a few tips about how do you actually do it effectively at work. Um, but that, yeah, that's absolutely the, a great first step. Oh, the um, other thing is, cool. sorry, the, the other thing is to go and find out what your humor style is. So people can go to humorseriously.com and take a quiz where they can actually answer a bunch of questions and figure out whether they fit into the stand-up, the magnet, the sweetheart, or the sniper. And that gives some insight into, as I mentioned, not just why humor is important and what your style is, but how do you make sure that you're you know, mitigating risk when you're at work and, and using humor in a way that's going to land well. Since you've written the book, since the book's come out, has there been anything that you've, you've been impressed with people's reaction to it or you've, you've discovered something new? First of all, people say that they are living their life with no regrets now. So that is why <laughs> it's pretty much transformed their lives you know, even just one or two chapters, they don't have to read the whole book. So yeah, so there's that, you know, we don't want to pat ourselves on the back, but there is life changing <laughs> results from it. Yeah. I mean, Nobel I think, prize beckons. Exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, with all of the heaviness in our world right now, we, um, you know, we weren't quite sure how it was going to go and what the appetite would be for talking about the power of humor. And so, you know, there's obviously just, there are so many important things to be thinking about right now. And I think one thing that that we were surprised by is how much in this context, people are feeling like humor is more important than ever, that it is a coping mechanism, that it's a way to, you know, stay light and survive through mm. some of the real hardship that's going on right now. And so we kind of weren't sure what to expect. I think we've been really excited about some of the feedback that we're getting that this is, you know, that it's helping people when they they feel like they need help. It's always difficult to know if your book will be timely. And I suspect coming out in the middle of a pandemic, it was like, oh my, uh, but actually it's been beautifully timely, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was like, at first it's like, oh, okay, is this the worst timing in the world? And then it's like, oh, actually <laughs> this could be when it, when it's really needed the most. So yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Yeah, that's it. That, that, it's, it's that sort of the first moment you go into a pandemic, you think everyone's going to be incredibly earnest and my goodness, what a serious <laughs> time. There's no room for levity. And then, of course, the moment we start experiencing is like, actually, I, I need the space that humour gives me to actually make sense of it all. Thank you so much. I genuinely loved the book. I, uh, Like I say, I sort of read it, almost all of it in one in one sitting. And I think what I loved is that there was just a whole load of stuff that I hadn't read anywhere else. You know, I read a lot of these things. It was, uh, it was fresh, fun, life affirming, and more than anything, you know, my, my overall experience of work was that when people said to me, do you enjoy your job? It came directly down to how much I laughed every day. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's the great tragedy of work that so much is written that tries to put a furrow in someone's brow and makes them earnestly try to hatch plans. And so little comes to address the attitude that people walk into a room with and the openness and the the warmth that they greet others with. And so I think that's why it was so brilliantly life-affirming for me, because it just reminds you that when you enjoy your job, it's normally because these moments of levity in it, these moments of humanity in it. I love that. We're going to be quoting you on our next podcast. That's right. <laughs> Bruce, thank you so much. It's been thank a you. Thank you both. It's thank been you. Pleasure. Um, Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jennifer and Naomi. Like I say, their book is sort of like taking their course and helping you step by step go through it. We're honoured. It's published in the UK before the US. And if you do enjoy it, make sure you post a review on Amazon because they've not got many reviews just yet. But it's always good when a book like that's published first here. And genuinely, if you wanted some message to take you into... 2021 and make your work more enjoyable i can't think of a better one than this thank you so much for listening i'm always grateful for your company i've been bruce daisley see you next time hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.